0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. All right, EJ. It's summer. In the woods behind your house, we had wings for lunch, we got beers, we're out in this beautiful weather. Sounds like a perfect day to talk
0: Pills football. Sounds like a perfect day to finish a very long podcast series. It's only been
1: three months. You're fine. It's only been three months months and hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of hours of research and recording and (laughs) sending assets to editors and
0: flights and verbos and... Stop, you're making me tired. <laughs> no, at least, lot. at least we have an awesome team to cap it off with.
1: Technically speaking, the best team in the NFL. Now, best team in the NFL that unfortunately, due to injuries, perhaps did not accomplish what they should have last year, but by the numbers, this was far and away the most dangerous ball club in the entire National Football League, both on offense and on defense.
0: Yeah, we've got numbers to prove it. Uh It is a very timely, although just completely accidental reveal. Uh They hold the top spot in our power countdown. And we're going to show you how we got that power score, but the Bills were number one in something, and this was it. We have a lot to go over today. So uh, for the second to last time, Jay,
1: Autumn, Anthony, please roll the intro. Welcome back once again to the Bootleg Football Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Coleman. That's my lovely co-host, DJ Snyder. As you know, talking bills today. And as you also know, they had uh, an obscene analytics profile in 2022. The big story for 2023 is can they keep that going and finally, and I mean truly finally, pay off having an elite roster? God, I
0: hope so. For... Everybody I know in Buffalo, for all the fans that knew how good this team was in 2022, God, I hope so. And I think they've got a decent shot to do it. This is not woe is you. They had to burn it all down. They didn't. The window is not closed. Uh, But let's talk a little bit about how good they were last year because they were, like, exceptionally historically good. So 2022, 13-3, and first in the division, 7 and 1 at home, 6 and 2 on the road. 5 and 0 oh in their last 5 games. If you're looking for like how to roll into a championship series, this is the way to do it.
1: Yeah, they were phenomenal um almost from start to finish. There was kind of a little mid-season danger zone when Josh was playing hurt. When ironically Josh playing hurt also forced them to switch their offense stylistically into a style that I felt was more efficient and better and then As Josh got healthier, they kind of drifted back into being, you know, the fighting Josh Allens. (laughs) It's like, guys, you have 10 other people in the field. Please use them. Uh, And when you're, A, very quarterback-reliant, or rather very reliant on your alien quarterback, and, B, when the defense takes an unfathomable amount of injuries, it eventually caught up to them to the point where they just couldn't get across the finish line. Um, But in the regular season, virtually from start to finish, they were – You know, either at the very top or very near the very top in every single statistical category, they just broke down when they could not afford to
0: break down, which is January. So those of you new to the series this year, we're doing an effectiveness summary. We talk about rushing offense, passing offense, rushing defense, passing defense, points scored and points allowed. Now, for the rushing and passing, we base all those numbers off EPA per play, which is an efficiency stat, and we give their league ranks. This is the only team I can remember that for every single league rank, it's a single-digit number. Yeah, I don't, even, I don't think the Eagles did that. Nope. I don't think the Chiefs did it. Cowboys came close, but I'm pretty sure Buffalo is the only one. There is good reason for them having a great power score. We'll go through it. Rushing offense, ninth in the league. Passing offense, Second in the league. Rush defense, seventh. Pass defense, also seventh. That is, those are exceptional marks. Points scored, 455. That was good enough for fourth in the entire league. Crazy. And points allowed, 286. They were the second best scoring defense in the NFL.
1: And the fourth best scoring offense at the same time. Like, that's, that's almost unheard of to be that good on offense and defense at the same time. Like... It's actually dumbfounding how good this team
0: was. It did make me sad when I put the numbers together because I knew the team was good. We actually saw them in person versus Green Bay. We listened to all the preseason hype. We talked to our friends, Drew and Chris. We were part of the preseason hype. We picked them to win the Super Bowl. (laughs) Everyone knew how good this team was going to be, and then we watched them go out and be that good. Bootleg power score, when you take those six numbers, add them up, divide by six, is five. That is number one with a bullet. It really was Buffalo's year. And like you said, unfortunate set of circumstances combined right at the end of the year when they couldn't afford it. And in a single elimination tournament like the playoffs, they had a bad day and they were out. That's the problem. They were on a knife's edge
1: where, you know, when they were on the good side of the knife, they were literally unbeatable. And when they were on the bad side of the knife, which was Daquan Jones got hurt, all of a sudden they were very beatable. And it it's a weird thing to say about a Super Bowl contending team where like the thing that (laughs) the thing that determines whether or not they can move on in the playoffs is, is Daquan Jones healthy, but you saw their run defense without him. It was really not good. Like it's, it's actually kind of crazy how much of a linchpin he was for them. And especially from a schematic perspective, which we'll get into in a second. Um, But you know, without him in the playoffs, a, Shaky run defense towards the end of the year just completely collapsed, uh, which means drives got extended, third downs got made easier, they couldn't get off the field, and they just broke down, right? And uh, I I truly hope for their sake this year that uh, their ability to win a Super Bowl is not reliant on, hey, is our nose tackle healthy? Because
0: that's, that's not where you want to be as a team. No, I would love to see them – I just want to say run it back, and that sounds weird for a team that didn't go to the AFC Championship, but I just want to see them run it back. They have a good plan. We'll talk about Brandon Bean and the and the roster he's assembled, Sean McDermott and his staff. They are holding the line. They were on the line, lined up. They had it, they had it, they had it, and they didn't get it.
1: Looking at uh, their schematic, information which again uh we we bring this up for every single team try to give context to the epa numbers uh this defense took me by surprise not gonna lie because i i knew we were gonna get quarters heavy uh in terms of their cover schemes they were 12th and quarters they were ninth and quarter quarter half i knew that going into it because again i watched a lot of pills tape and i saw them (laughs) in quarters and quarter quarter half a lot what i didn't realize is that they were 11th in cover 1. They played a lot of single high safety man coverage. And I I did a little bit more contextual digging because I was like, how how I don't remember that. How did that happen? Um, and then it occurred to me, wait a minute, a lot of the time when I'm watching Bills defense, I'm looking at like third down cutups and everything like that. Let me let me flip it on to early downs. Yeah. And see what they ran. And if you break it down by down in terms of their cover one percentage. Um, this is a big reason why their run defense was so good, was because they were uh, they were playing single high safety man coverage, meaning a safety is down in the box. So there's just more bodies down there. So you're getting a body for every single gap. Uh, coaches call it eight-man spacing, which is basically like we are, no matter what, not going to be outnumbered down here. And they did that a lot on early downs to the point where on first down they called cover 1 at the sixth highest rate in the NFL at 19.7%. They called uh cover 1 the fifth highest rate in the NFL on second down at 26.2%. So on early downs, it was we are in man coverage. We have a safety down in the box. Our linebackers are flying downhill. Everybody's aggressive. Everybody's getting in the backfield. You know, we're getting tackles for loss. We're trying to get you into third and seven-plus, which is when they stopped playing man coverage. They were 26th <laughs> in cover one in the NFL at 23.6%, which by NFL standards, that's that's not a lot of man coverage on third down. So the cadence of the defense, which is, again, what surprised me, is early downs, man coverage stack the box. Late downs, shit ton of quarters and quarter-quarter half. We're just going to smother you with really good, uh, really disciplined zone coverage and trust our front front four to win, uh, which they did win quite often uh, before, again, everybody got hurt and then, then they couldn't do anything.
0: And they've got great athletes, so they can do man coverage on the early downs, even though the NFL is shifting more towards a pass-heavy set on early downs, on first and second down. The, old, the whole idea of run it on first and second, throw it on third if you're not there and punt it, is five years ago. Mm-hmm. And despite that, they can play those man coverages in early downs and hold up because they got the guys. Or at least they did when they were healthy. They Again, the guys. secondary was
1: one of the areas where they took a yeah. ton of injuries.
0: Their entire secondary was injured at one point or another, um, some of them quite seriously for the entire season. Um It was a bad stack, but yes, the roster that's been assembled can hold up in those coverages in early downs, and not every roster can.
1: But if you look at their blitz percentages on third downs, it does also kind of mirror that philosophy um, where third and short, 17th in blitz percentage, third and medium, 20th in blitz percentage, third and seven, 28th in blitz percentage. Remember how I said their goal was to play man coverage and fly downhill and get tackles for loss, get you into third and seven plus, then play zone coverage and rush with four. Well, their their blitzes was (laughs) 22% on third and long. That's not a lot. You compare it to the top teams that were like 55, 60%, you know, so they they were not a very aggressive defense on third down. They were a disciplined defense on third down, which uh, I know sounds the same, but it's really not. No different kind of philosophy. Uh, And if you look at their stunt percentage, they were also dead ass down the middle uh, at 17. The NFL at forty two point nine percent. So I'm curious if they keep this same general philosophy going into twenty twenty three because they still do have a really good secondary. They still got Trey White, who's now a year more than a year off that injury, right? They got Kyrie Elam, who's looking pretty good in camp. They got Teron Johnson, who's one of the best nickels in the entire NFL. Um, They still have Poyer. They still have Hyde. Um, God, I forgot Taylor Rapp came over too. And, of course, Damar Hamlin as well, who also is back and practicing and, and looking good and should be ready week one as well. So they still have an amazing secondary. So they could do this again if they wanted to. I'm just curious to see if they actually do it.
0: I think they'll try because they've got to assume, like we've got to assume, that not more than half of those guys are going to go down injured. That's that's an aberration statistically. Mm-hmm. It's not something that's very typical. So I think they're going to say, look, it was working when we had all the guys. We got all our guys back. Let's go.
1: Flipping over to the offensive side of the ball, looking at uh, their run concept frequency. And again, take this with a grain of salt because uh, these numbers ebbed and flowed Heavily, depending on whether or not Josh Allen was fully healthy, feels like the offense was wired completely differently when they were trying to protect him. Um, But for the season long totals, outside zone, they were 28. They were not a heavy outside zone team at all. Inside zone, they were 16th, especially from the gun. They really did like inside zone a lot. Duo, also again, from the gun, they liked it a lot. They were 11th in the NFL. They were 14th in power, 20th in counter, some of which were with Josh Allen, especially in the red zone. They were third in draw, also <laughs> with Josh Allen in the red zone uh, and on third down. And then they were third in pin and pull. So a uh, pretty diverse run scheme, um, but especially early on in the year, not a high-volume run scheme when they were getting – a little too Josh-centric for my liking, kind of slipping back into that old habit. Uh, I, I really do think that the best version of the Bills offense was in the middle of the year when they were more balanced, when they ran the ball more, they were more effective at running it as well. And that's really where I felt, uh, and especially before the defense got injured, that kind of middle point of the season was really where I felt the Bills actually were at their best because
0: I felt that style was very sustainable. So the first thing that happened when Josh got injured was the collective holding of breath over the entire city of Buffalo and Bill's fandom worldwide. Then it was like, nope, he's not going to be out for the season. Cool. Okay, what does this mean? What can he do? How quickly? And a lot of people thought, well, this is going to be really limiting. And, geez, we've just been running the entire offense through Josh and especially Josh's arm, so we're screwed. And instead, the coaching staff did a tremendous job, came back and said, What can we do? Hey, Josh, you don't have to do it all. Let's get a little bit more balance here. Let's lean on the running backs. Let's lean on the tight end a little bit more. Let's spread it around in shorter throws that you can do even with an injured arm. And it took about two weeks, and then it hit that period of like, wow, they're actually more effective when they use everybody equally. And then his arm got stronger and stronger. And he naturally drifted back to relying on it more and more, especially late in games. And I'm with you. It felt less efficient and less effective later in the year, even though he got stronger physically. The peaks were higher and the valleys were lower. And I feel like that
1: that the high peaks and low valleys corresponded pretty heavily with whether or not um, they were playing with balance. Right. When it clicks... Boy, it clicks. Again, seeing the Rams game live and in person, it felt like we were watching an actual superhero. But then when it doesn't click, say a couple weeks later in Miami, um, and yes, I know, I was at that game. I felt the heat on the field. I was in like the sixth row. I get it. People were dropping like flies. (laughs) I was in the freaking stadium, okay? I understand that heat. But at the same time, Josh – made some really, really bad decisions in that game trying to play Hero Ball. And uh and he got a little bit lucky. So from a schematic perspective, and I did a whole video on it, from a schematic perspective, uh that week three game against Miami was the first time I was like, mmm, we gotta switch some things up here. Yeah. Um and eventually they did obviously, but that that really did hammer home the point of like we can't just be the Josh Allen show. And speaking of the Josh Allen show, it's probably a good segue to get into the passing offense overview. Um, again, when this was clicking, it was something to behold. They were first in big-time throw percentage at 7.3 EJ. For context, Daniel Jones was at like one point something, like mid ones. Like Josh Allen was like literally five times the Giants' big-time throw percentage. He, he was insane when he was on, obviously. Average depth of target, 10.4, second highest in the NFL. Air yards percentage first 62.8 percent they were not a yak centric offense they were a vomit down the field because our quarterback is an alien centric offense uh they were ninth longest in terms of average time to throw at 2.91 seconds which again not necessarily a bad thing when your quarterback is as mobile as josh allen he's going to get out of some stuff he's going to hold the ball it's not that's not a bad stat it's more just a reflection of hey we have a gigantic mobile quarterback Uh, play action percentage 21st they were not a very heavy play action team Uh, and then total yards per attempt seventh at 7.9 so a very healthy YPA as well Um, I don't want to sound like I'm being super critical of the Bills passing game I don't want to I don't want to come off that way I acknowledge the Bills passing game is utterly absurd I just wish they run the ball like a little bit more that's all
0: It's hard when you have a weapon like that and when he does unleash it and make good decisions at the same time, which he does much, much more often than he did early in his career, it's hard not to just let that guy off the chain because when he is on, he is the top thrower in the NFL. I know people are going to say Mahomes. Mahomes is the best quarterback in the NFL. Yeah. But Josh Allen, when he is on and making the right call, there's – he can do things that nobody else can do. He's
1: special. Like, there's just really no other way to put it. He's just, he's flat-out special. And I'm happy that he's in Buffalo because Bill's fans deserve to have a special quarterback. They they waited long enough for that. Um, flipping over to the power structure, looking at who's in charge of, of captaining this ship over Josh Allen. Very stable structure. Very good structure. One of the better ones in the league. And... I would give them all the credit in the world for how they steered this ship through everything that happened last year. Not just the DeMar Hamlin thing, which was yeah. incredible leadership from, from Sean McDermott, right? And Zach Taylor as well. Give him credit too for, for also acknowledging, like, we cannot play this football game. yeah, But getting the team through the DeMar Hamlin situation, uh, guiding the team through all the injuries they were taking, especially the secondary and Vaughn going down and Josh's injury and, it, it takes a special leader to to somehow not completely implode. And this team won 13 games despite everything that happened. So I, I give this coaching staff all the credit in the world for keeping their guys ready to play. Again, it was not their fault that they fell apart. It wasn't even really the players' fault no. that they fell apart. It was just injuries, right? The question, though, that I have for you is, even though we love Sean McDermott, especially as a head coach, We even love Sean McDermott as a DC before he was a head coach. With Leslie Frazier, quote unquote, stepping aside for the year, whatever that means. Uh, Who knows if he'll be back in 2024. I don't know. I guess we'll find out then. Uh, But with Leslie Frazier stepping away for a year or more and Sean McDermott taking over reportedly defensive play calling duties. How much do you think that changes Sean McDermott, the head coach, now that he also essentially
0: has to be the D.C. as well? I think a little less given his tenure. If it was something he was trying to do, as a lot of new head coaches do, which we see a lot of new head coaches keep their offensive play calling uh, because that's what got them the job, Um, we don't really see, for the most part, new coaches keep the defensive play calling. But McDermott's been there and done that. He has done the CEO role, and he obviously comes from a defensive background, but he's done both. I feel better about his ability to slip into it. I still wish he had more help, but I'm better with it now than I would have been if he tried to do it when he came on board. I'm not going to doubt him, that's for sure. Uh, more so, I'm just very
1: interested to see <laughs> to see how that affects him because he's been a great head coach, and he's been a great defensive coordinator, never had to do both at the same time. So this season – I have to imagine there will be a little bit of a learning curve there, so we'll see how it works out. Um, but the rest of the power structure in Buffalo is more than capable of, uh, of sharing the load there because they have one of the, the better front offices and one of the better overall coaching staffs, I think, in the NFL. And, and the proof is the fact that they're a really good team that
0: constantly wins a lot of games. Start to the top with GM Brandon Bean. Um Came on, really restructured this roster, has a very good roster, um, a roster that gets poached every year. That's what happens when you win a lot of games. And they have had a plan for succession. They have had good drafts. Uh, they have been smart, for the most part, in free agency. And he has kept this team, from a roster standpoint, near the top of the league. That roster has fueled Buffalo to all their success. McDermott pulling all the right levers with those players and, quite frankly, contributing to getting them on board. Mm-hmm. Um, These two have worked very well together, and we've said this throughout this series. The best teams have a strong handshake between GM and coach, and the Bills have a very strong handshake between those two. Coordinators, the assistant head coach and defensive line coach is Eric Washington. The OC is Ken Dorsey, his second year in that role. Of course, he was the quarterback's coach before that, so he has a lot of familiarity with Josh and the rest of the offense. Defensive coordinator is officially vacant, but McDermott's going to be manning that for now. And the special teams coordinator, Matthew Smiley, Again, this wasn't a lack of coaching. This wasn't horrible game management. This wasn't, you know, just bad luck. It Mm -hmm. was a combination of half the team being wiped out by injuries and all the other situations that you mentioned, which were exceptional. They held the team together very well. They won a ton of games, but they couldn't push the ball over the finish line. We'll see if they can do it this year.
1: The assistants underneath those coordinators Also should be mentioned, Aaron Cromer, one of the best offensive line coaches in the NFL, uh, as well as run game coordinator, uh, spent time with six teams in various coaching roles, started coaching in 1990. He's a seasoned vet as they come and also a very, very, very good offensive line coach, as evidenced by the fact that he's turned some some pieces that they didn't invest a whole lot of money in or didn't invest, you know, high draft capital in and, and turn them into very capable starters over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, so credit to him for that. Joe Brady uh, was at one point a hot name that people were looking at for maybe NFL head coaching cycles, but unfortunately, you know, ran into the uh, the Matt Rule experience down there in Carolina. They had some, some pretty heavy disagreements for how the Panthers offense should run. Sean McDermott says... Uh, I will scoop you up. Thank you very much, sir. Um, He was, you know, former uh, pass game coordinator, LSU, uh, former disciple of Sean Payton, very bright offensive mind and somebody who I still think is not done yet in terms of uh, NFL head coaching aspirations. Obviously might take a little bit longer to get there, might have to take the longer road around. He is still very young. And uh, once Ken Dorsey inevitably ends up getting a job somewhere, I would imagine he's going to slip into that coordinator role and then, and then be right back in line for that. Uh, and then second-generation NFL coaches on staff, we have Mike Shula, Kyle Shermer, which Kyle, I feel like he was just in college like four years ago,
0: and, uh, and Bobby Babich. So a lot of second-generation coaches here too. It's fun to see that. Uh, sons following in their dad's footsteps, um, being very effective coaches. Again, this coaching staff sort of end-to-end there's not a lot of places you can poke holes in it and go, well, they're really strong over here, but we're not going to talk about that guy. <laughs> um, there was a little bit of that with Leslie. And
1: speaking of the Bills' defense, by the way, I know that you haven't looked at these yet. Um, <laughs> Gregor Rousseau and Leonard Floyd have season-long pick totals on underdog for sacks. Ooh. Underdog does uh, some defensive players sure. for sack totals. They're both at 7.5. Ooh. Which is, like, right on the line for both of them. For me, with the role that I think Leonard Floyd is going to play mm-hmm. and with what I think Gregory Rousseau can do as somebody who can play both inside and outside, I would go higher on Rousseau at 7.5 or more sacks. I think I'd go under on Floyd, but only just barely.
0: That's exactly what I was gonna say for both. Is I'll take a tick over for Russo. I think he's due for a little. He's already had a bit of a breakout, but another sort of mini breakout or or you know, rising up to the next plateau of his ability. Leonard Floyd, a little bit more known, is gonna be a very good and versatile player, but has never been a huge sack threat. He he's a dirty work kind of guy. Like when I think of.
1: Of Floyd, I think of him as somebody who, who's good at going forwards and backwards. You can drop him into coverage. He plays the run really well. He could play off ball. He could play on the line. Again, I'm not entirely sure he's going to be a full-time edge for them. I think they're going to do a little bit of everything with him because that's what he's always done is a little bit of everything. And mainly because of that, uh, I, I have him a little under 7.5. Uh, by the way, the offensive totals, there's a lot of them. <laughs> Strange. Josh Allen, one of the highest passing yards totals I've seen at 4,300. Yep. It's tempting for me to say lower just because it's hard to throw for 4,300 in the NFL, but at the same time it's Josh Allen, I don't dare bet against him. So I'll go higher on that one. Sure, fine. Uh, 32 and a half passing touchdowns. Again, that is a tough number to hit year after year, but I... I don't feel comfortable going going lower on anything for Josh Allen. I also don't don't feel comfortable going lower on interceptions. He's at 13 and a half and I still feel like in year 6 or whatever at right now. There's still like one or two throws a game where I'm like dear god Josh what are you
0: doing? So I, I can't definitively say he's going to throw less than 14 picks either. For me it feels like one or two games a year where he just sort of reverts. It's not long stretches um and it's not game after game after game he doesn't string those games together but there's a couple maybe it's even down to halves but it's like what are you doing well uh in the green bay game that we went
1: to everything was locked up they were good to go like they were kicking the shit out of him and then josh just got a wild hair and started giving the ball away and let green bay back into the game and and he just he just does that and, like, I know all the guys that cover one, they call it Sugar Rush Josh, where he's just like, I'm going to make a play. And it's like, you don't have to do that. Please, please do not do that. And it's always in the red zone or it's always on third down. And it's, it's only a few times a game, but it's, like, soul-crushing whenever it happens because you know it's, like, very preventable mistakes. If he just cuts those two or three plays out per week, he's not going to throw 14 picks. But also...
0: I just I have yet to see him cut out those two to three plays a week. Not true. I was sitting right next to you when you saw it. What do you mean? The game at SoFi. Okay, that that week one game, everything worked. Right. They and could not so go you, wrong. You have seen it. And we looked at each other, so we saw him twice in the stands last year. That game we looked at each other and we went, if he does this, this team is unstoppable. If he, he plays <laughs> like this, this team is unstoppable. And in Green Bay he threw that pick, and we looked at each other, and we went, bad Josh. Like, there's good Josh, which is most of the time. Again, we are not heaping on Josh Allen. He is, we've called him an alien, and rightfully so. We've said that it's legitimate that his season throwing line is 4,300 yards, and it is. 30-plus touchdowns, and it is. But there is still those times, even if it's only a half or, or maybe a game, where you just go, what are you doing? Yeah, people always say that uh, Mahomes is the new Brett Favre.
1: And I'm like, no, he's not. Mm -hmm.
0: Josh is the new Brett Favre. Yeah, and I would say even at this point in Josh's career, he is more dialed than Favre almost ever was. I would
1: say the MVP years for Brett were comparable, but that's like the normal for Josh. So he could very easily surpass Brett's legacy. I mean, obviously, it would take winning a Super Bowl or two to do that. Uh, but he could very easily surpass Brett's legacy like before he even gets 10 years in the league. Like yeah. That's how good he is.
0: And Buffalo fans would be fine with that if it just oh, I'm took sure winning a couple of Super Bowls. But it seemed like, um, except for, I'll say about two to three years of Brett Favre's career where he really had a handle on it. So early in his career, it was rampant, finally got it under control had a very good section in the middle of his career, and then at the end of his career, he would do it again. (laughs) He would just light it up, let it loose, questionable calls. Uh, I feel like, again, Josh, where he is right now, is at the level Brett was at in the middle of those years. Like 96-ish. He's just absolutely clicking and looked unbeatable. That's what that Rams game looked like.
1: Yeah, he just has to do it more. That's it. Uh, Other numbers here that you may find interesting. James Cook is at 600 yards for the season, by the way. And I think they're basically building in the Buffalo doesn't like running the ball narrative here. But if they do run the ball more, that's going to get crushed by like week 10, I would say. Um, Damian Harris is at 550. How many touchdowns? They don't have a touchdown number for Damian, Uh, Harris. And I think that's on purpose, right? That's That's definitely on purpose because you know he's getting everything inside the five. Yeah. Cook is at three and a half for the year.
0: I think that goes back to, look, we're going to throw it a lot more than we run it, and when things get bad, we're going to throw it, not run it. When it, It's almost like Buffalo doubles down on this. A lot of teams, when they get into trouble and they struggle with what their primary is, certainly that's throwing the ball in Buffalo, they'll throttle back on that and say, look, we just need to settle everybody down and run the ball. Buffalo kind of goes, we can't run the ball, so we're just going to throw it more. Yeah. It's like shooters in the NBA, right? <laughs> Just keep shooting. Shooter, shoot. That's right.
1: <laughs> uh, for the receiving end, Gabe Davis is at 735.5 for the year with six receiving touchdowns. I'm more inclined to go higher on the touchdowns than I am on the yards, honestly. 15.5 uh, receptions. Again, I, I think out of all those that I think go higher, it's it's definitely touchdowns. Um, Dawson Knox is at 4.5 touchdowns on the year. 425.5 receiving And only 39 and a half receptions.
0: Hmm. I think I would go higher on receptions. The touchdown touchdown number, because it has to be spread around, seems about right. Um, The yards, again, uh, one Dalton Kincaid might have a lot to do with that.
1: They're definitely building Kincaid into that, I think. Because a lot of people expect him to sort of be like the number two overall target as like a big slot uh a, a big slot and also outside receipt I mean Dalton Kincaid's everything right <laughs> and and we will get more into him when we do the draft section um but there's a lot of people that are like he's going to get the second most catches on the team the second most yardage on the team and maybe even the second most receiving touchdowns on the team behind only Stefan and that drumbeat has been fairly consistent throughout the summer. So I have to imagine that the, the, the Knox numbers are heavily impacted by that. Uh, but if you happen to be a Bills fan and you have a different perspective on the matter, maybe you are still a Gabe Davis believer. You know, maybe you are still a Dawson Knox believer, or maybe you do think that uh, Josh is gonna throw for 40 touchdowns and no picks because he's the, the, the second coming. Uh, whatever you happen to believe about your wonderful Bills offense, uh, if any of these season long numbers happen to intrigue you or if you want to look at all the best ball valuations uh if you want to go for that 15 million dollars in prize pool in best ball over on underdog uh, or maybe you want to do some baseball on there or hockey or basketball when that starts up or you want to do weekly pick'ems. there's a million different things that you can do on underdog and if you use promo code bootleg they will match your deposit up to a hundred dollars so whether you put in 10 bucks or 20 bucks or 50 or hundred, promo code bootleg will double that, and they'll give you uh, literally a hundred extra dollars for free if that's what you put in to use on the platform, and hopefully turn that into even more by going over on uh, Dawson Knox. So again, promo code bootleg. Thank you to Underdog for sponsoring this entire series, which we are now at the end of. EJ, let's talk free agency.
0: Quite a few players leaving the Bills. I wouldn't say that many that really they'll feel. I'm going to concentrate on four. Roger Saffold, the left guard, 98% of the snaps. Tremaine Edmonds, this is the one that really probably they'll feel the most. Bears sign him to a superstar contract. He was good for 72% of their snaps, but played a very large role in their defense. Isaiah McKenzie, underrated wide receiver signs with the Colts, was good for 51% of the snaps in Buffalo, but they were important in terms of the third option. Those are a lot of the snaps that are going to go to Dalton Kincaid, so not such a big deal, but it's a shift from wide receiver to tight end. And Devin Singletary, the running back, moves on to your Texans, 65% of the snaps. Again, they have a very solid plan for how they're going to replace those particular snaps, but those are the four most impactful players out of this whole list in terms of number of snaps played, role they played, and really what they meant to the Bills. We're very curious to get uh, Bills fans' thoughts
1: on losing Tremaine. Because there's a lot of Bills fans that, I don't want to say we're anti-Tremaine, but we're waiting for the switch to flip. And then he did get better as his time went on in Buffalo. But then the $18 number dropped, and a lot of Bills fans were like, ooh, I don't know if we would have done that, right? Uh, But I am curious for the Bills fans listening to give us your opinion on if you would have paid Tremaine top of market money you know knowing that you still have Matt Milano on a deal that is uh still criminally undervalued uh and it was even when he signed it like we said that at the time like oh that is not enough money for Matt Milano uh but you know you're staring down the barrel of Matt Milano and Terrell Bernard being the new linebacker duo rather than Matt Milano and Tremaine Edmonds and Bernard and Edmonds are very different players so I'd love to get Bills fans' thoughts on that uh, if, if you would have given him the $18 million, if you could. For me, um, considering the type of defense they play, I didn't necessarily feel like they needed to invest $18 million in a middle linebacker as much as Chicago did, <laughs> especially considering what Chicago's going to do from a schematic perspective. A lot of Tampa, too needing a big, rangy, athletic 6'5 guy that can run the pole down the middle. A little bit more important for Chicago than it is for Buffalo, in my opinion, but that's just me. Again, sound off below, Bills fans. I want to know what you think about that. And then uh, in terms of who they did re-sign, Tim Settle brought him back for a very reasonable $3 million deal, like that deal, Tyler Bass, uh, 5.1. I don't think it's at the top of the kicker market, but it's somewhat near it which with how consistent he is. Totally cool with that. Shaq Lawson still kicking around, almost 30 at 1.3 million brought him back. Uh Naheem Hines, unfortunately, he will not be playing this year because of a freak jet ski accident which is just unbelievable to me. It's so Bills that 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 some of all things like that somehow happens to the Bills the day before training camp. It's, it's very sad, but also just like, of course it did. You know, of, of course that happens. Uh, so hopefully he comes back healthy uh, next year because he is a really dynamic player when he's actually on the field. Uh, Matt Milano, like I just mentioned, uh, got extended again. Still nowhere near the top of the linebacker market, even though he should be near the top of the linebacker market. Uh, still not making as much as Tremaine Edmonds, even though he should be making more than Tremaine Edmonds, in my opinion. But again... That's just one man's thoughts. Uh, and then Jordan Poyer at 6.25 million, which for a 32 year old safety seems fair. I know it doesn't seem fair to Jordan, but that's, a, that's probably about the max he would get on the open market anyway. So uh, good deal for me. Also Jordan Phillips at 3 million at Oliver at 17 million. That one, I'm not sure how I feel about yet. Like I get it. It's not even close to the top of the DT market. Like you've got uh, you know, Jeff Simmons at like 22 and a half, uh, if I recall correctly, Quinn's at like 24 and a half, something like that. 80s, 30 plus. So it's not like he's being super highly paid, but at the same time, I'm, I'm not sure I'm all in favor of, of that particular deal, at least at that particular number for at Oliver, I think he's fine, but 17 was a little rich for me. Uh, and then Dane Jackson at 2 million, um, to be probably their CB2 this year, I think, just looking at the depth chart. Uh, It's either him or Kair Elam. Um, And I I guess we'll see at the camp battle there. But either way, even if he's CB4, 2 million is pretty reasonable.
0: Shout out to Dane, first guy we ever interviewed together, 2020 senior bowl.
1: Great Uh, dude as well.
0: Did uh, I tell you I met his trainer when I was in uh, Pittsburgh? No. Yeah.
1: So my buddy from the NFL who I was in Pittsburgh with – one of his uh, childhood friends came over for a barbecue. And again, this Pittsburgh area, right? Dane went to Pitt, grew up in the area, and it was his trainer. And that's what he does for I mean, they went to high school together, but he grew up and now he trains NFL players and stuff like that. And Dane's one of his guys. That's crazy. Like, no way, small world.
0: That's anyway. really cool. As far as Ed Oliver goes, I think that number from the Bills is we like you this much. We like you. We want to keep you. We're willing to pay this much. No, it's not the top of the market, but you also don't have top of market skills. You have some that are very, very good and you have others that are not great. So again, we like you with this number. And Oliver, you know, probably looked around and said, "Okay, I like being here. I know the system. I know that I can have success. I trust my coaches. I'd prefer to get paid a little bit more, but I'm not sure that's going to happen somewhere else either. Don't want to be more than an hour away from Bar Bill. I get it. (laughs) <laughs> I really do. Cajun Honey
1: Butter Barbecue. No, is it Cajun Cajun Honey Butter Barbecue? I think that's what the flavor we had was. And like, yeah. I, I thought it.
0: bourbon was in there somewhere. Uh,
1: it, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it's a very convoluted uh, flavor name, but good God, it's delicious. So I get you. I get you, Ed. I'd want to stay there too. Looking at third party additions, uh, by the way, in terms of uh, people that have come in from other teams now to be within the vicinity of Bar Bill, uh, clearly the only reason. Uh, Trent Sherfield, they brought in from the Dolphins at $1.7 million, or $1.8-ish. Damian Harris, like we mentioned before, he's going to be the hammer inside the red zone and also probably the short yardage back and maybe even the fourth quarter grinder as well uh, at a very reasonable $1.8 million deal himself. Leonard Floyd kicking around still at the ripe age of 31 at $7 million per year. Uh, Deontay Hardy. Kind of little gadget player there. Maybe give them a little bit of that yak element that they've been missing. Uh, also a good returner as well. Four point seven five million for him. Puna Ford, who hopefully uh, will give them another run stopping presence on the interior defensive line. Uh, mainly because I just I don't think that's I don't think that's what Ed is there to do. Like if you watched Ed against Miami, he got his lunch money taken on outside zone over and over and over again. Hence why when Daquan went out, they didn't really have anybody else that could stop the run. I think they're bringing in Puna to add into that rotation of like, we know what Ed is and we know what Ed isn't. Puna, your job, go kill the run game. He's going to do that for them. Uh, And then Kyle Allen, backup to the backup. And then uh, Greg Mance also uh, brought him in from the Vikings to be uh, probably the the backup center as well at 1.2 million. So, They did throw around a little bit of money for third-party free agents, but they spent most of their cash on uh, high-dollar, either retentions, extensions, uh, raises,
0: however you want to phrase it, for uh, Milano
1: and Ed Oliver.
0: I think Leonard Floyd is a really good addition for them because he's going to do, and this is going to sound weird, some of the Tremaine Edmonds things. I could see it. It It's going to be the things that Tremaine Edmonds did sideline to sideline. It's going to be those things in the sort of short five yard area getting out towards the edge floyd's always been an excellent operator in that area he's got a tremendously long arms, so he can really clog a passing lane he's not going to be the true sack threat he's listed an edge and that was why a lot of people got on him or called him a bust in chicago is he never racked up big double digit sack numbers it's just not his game he could penetrate he could get a lot of pressures He definitely can string out the run to the edge, which Mm -hmm. is the piece that's going to look a little bit like, hey, if we have to replace Jermaine Edmonds and we're going to use two or three players to do bits of it, that's the bit that Floyd's going to do. Damian Harris is addition by subtraction from a rival. I love that move. Um, And then Deontay Hardy, mm, keep an eye on him. I think he's going to be a little bit more impactful in Buffalo then people are thinking has almost no name recognition, but they didn't give him almost 5 million compared to some other wide receivers like Sherfield, who they gave 1.7 by accident. No, no, they did not. Uh, he is, he is there to play a,
1: a very specific, but also very important role. Um, I think overall they had a pretty nice March. Again, they didn't spend the money exactly the same way I would have spent it, but I also don't think they spent it poorly necessarily. Um they they definitely wanted to keep their window as open as humanly possible and damn the future. I think in a couple of years I I think their contracts that they're in right now uh could get a little messy, but also if they win a Super Bowl between now and then, I don't really think they're going to care. So screw it, I guess. Um but one thing that will help them to uh to stay afloat if and when these eventual contract balloons pop is nailing the draft and continuing to get cheap talent that is good talent looking at their draft class here it wasn't the biggest in the world they only had six picks but in particular their first three i thought were really really good and
0: at least a couple of them could be foundational pieces for the future And I actually thought their back three for what they were in terms of being late round choices were really excellent. We'll talk about that as well. But right up top, round one, pick 25. We've talked about him a couple times already. Tight end Dalton Kincaid out of Utah. My first offensive 10 gem when we did our 10 gems pre-draft special. Love, love, love this player. Love the fit rave reviews in camp he is absolutely going to eat into dawson knox's yards and gabe davis's yards he is that capable great player in space his feel for just carving up zones as a receiver is travis kelsey-esque Enough said he is a great young player can't wait to watch his career in buffalo round two pick 59 guard osiris torrance out of florida absolute beater Mm -hmm. (laughs) mover in the run game one of the most talented and powerful inside guards in this entire class. Great get by Brandon Bean. Round three, pick 91. Linebacker Dorian Williams out of Tulane. This is a guy they hope can mold himself into the Tremaine Edmonds role with a little sprinkle of Matt Milano in there. I,
1: he's built more like Matt Milano than he is built like Tremaine Edmonds. Um, I think he's a little bit more slashy does that make sense it does to me like he's more of a, a slasher than milano not that milano is like this big like take on guy who's gonna shed blocks and everything like that but um i do feel like in terms of like the quickness and the finesse and the fluidity he's he's like a matt milano type that is even further along on the spectrum to that style of linebacker right and they can create a lot of really big negative plays for the offense, but at the same time, if you run right at him, there can be a little bit of an issue. So uh, if he eventually becomes a starter next to Milano, let's say he beats out Bernard, right? Um, their linebacking core would certainly be light, and they would be relying on their interior defensive line to protect them, which means, dear God, Daquan, please stay healthy. But at the same time, their linebacking core would also be rangy, Phenomenal in coverage, really good sideline to sideline.
0: So if that's the style that you're going for, Dorian fits that perfectly and loves to hit. Mm-hmm. So can run sideline to sideline. Is not as big as Tremaine, like you said, but loves to hit. So that should endear him to the folks in Buffalo. Round five, they drop down. They don't have a round four pick. So round five, pick one fifty wide receiver Justin Shorter, who is anything but out of Florida. He's <laughs> a big dude. He's about six four, well over two hundred pounds. Um, is going to be that X jump ball guy they're going to try and develop down the boundary. Now, round seven, two picks, 230 and 252. At 230, they get offensive guard Nick Broker out of Ole Miss. Again, another very powerful player. Best thing about his highlights, torque. Yeah. Latches onto people, strong hands, strong forearms, and just turns people from the waist down can move folks out of gaps on the inside. So if they want to lean a little bit more on those inside power duo inside zone runs, Broker is eventually a guy that could move into a very important role in that running game. And then last pick, 252, cornerback Alex Austin, guy I saw at Oregon State at his pro day, um, was the less heralded of the two Oregon State corners coming into the draft process. But there was a lot of sort of Voices right at the end there that mm, I think Austin might have more potential than Rajon. Right. Wright. Um, very lucky to get him in round seven. Talented guy. Reminds me of a lot of the corners they've taken a little bit later, like Dane. Different I can player, see that. yeah. Different player, but same kind of profile of like, hey, we really like some of these skills. We think he fits our defense very well. We don't have to play him right away because of all the talent we've stacked in front of him. But two or three years from now, it's going to be like, oh blanks moving on who's going to take their spot and it's like well alex austin's been looking really good he's gotten better every year looking at their udfa haul that they got beyond the draft class um because
1: overall we, we like their draft class but uh nailing the udfa process is also crucial for maintaining a financially viable roster right like it's one thing to get cheap rookies it's another thing to get dirt cheap rookies so uh really nailing these is important And they got a couple that I think actually have a a legit shot here. Jordan Mims, the running back out of Fresno State, somebody we saw at Shrine Bowl. Uh, We really, really like his tape. Great vision, great contact balance. Um, In terms of like vertical juice, you know, is he going to run away from people? Probably not. But if you need four yards, he can get you four yards. I think he's absolutely going to compete with Latavius Murray and Darrington Evans for that RB3 spot. Has a legitimate shot. To make the roster in my estimation at minimum making practice squad um because he does kind of give them that just consistent banger element that god forbid damien goes down they're going to need a, another one of those right to, to compliment cook and i think he could absolutely do
0: that mims is tremendous love him as a player So consistently productive. You talked about lack of high end traits necessarily in terms of speed. He is really strong. He's very tough and he is smart as a runner. He is just one of those running backs that if you give him the ball, he is going to give you four, four and a half, five, five and a half yards every single carry. And he's going to pop a couple too. You're going to look down at the end of the game, he's going to have 115 yards. He might have a touchdown and he just stacks those games. He is not streaky at all. He's the opposite of that. He's rock solid. Yeah, if you want consistency, he's your guy. He's your guy. Um,
1: the, the tackle out of Florida, I did watch him, but it was only on all 22, so I didn't get a pronunciation on his name. What is it? I believe it's Gouridge. Goridge. okay. Um, I, there's something about Florida offensive linemen where if you're not a mauler, they're not interested in you. <laughs> To me, that's really what he like foot speed. No, uh, being able to get to a landmark quickly. No, but if he gets his hands on you and he turns it into a mud wrestling match, you're probably going to lose.
0: Yeah. Big, wide, strong, (laughs) seems to be their type. If you look like a freezer turned sideways, they're interested. (laughs) And again, developmental guy, they don't need him right away. But if you get that kind of talent for free and it does work out, it's like a lottery ticket paying off.
1: Six five, a thirty four inch arms. That's a that's an Aaron Cromer lineman if I've ever seen one. <laughs> uh, so overall, again, there's a there's a lot of good rookies to be excited about here. Uh, a nice infusion of youth and talent that they're desperately going to need in order to you know, make their their Josh Allen window last as long as humanly possible. They will inevitably still run into financial stuff in a couple of years, like that's just going to happen. But uh, as long as they keep drafting like this and getting UDFA classes like this, they'll also probably be just fine. So that brings us to our final couple segments here. We have the report card and the ceiling and floor in wins report card. If you're new to this show, we have four categories, front office, coaching staff, offense, or rather offensive talent and defensive talent. And we're grading where we think they are now relative to the end of last year. Meaning are they up? Are they down or we have a third grade, which is possible, which is neutral, which is not positive or negative. It just means that either they were bad before and they're bad now, or they're good before and they're good now in the bills case, obviously good before it's tough to improve on anything for Buffalo. To be honest, Uh, they were not a top five team in virtually every category by accident. This is an incredibly deep roster. Uh, It's an incredibly talented roster. It's a well-coached roster. They have an alien at quarterback, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That being said, Front office. We're going to go with up. It's the same people in the building, but how they have navigated free agency, how they have uh, kept the cupboard stocked with the draft, not just this year, but in the last couple of years, they're certainly doing their best to not only create this window, but to extend it as long as they can. So we'll give an up there. Coaching staff. I don't really know what to do with this because
0: of the D.C. situation. I think that's the piece that is just like, can we give an incomplete grade? I think we can. Did you ever get one of those in high school? Like, you didn't do all your work. I can't grade it all. Uh, We don't really know how this is going to work out. We talked about it at the top of the show. We hope that it doesn't negatively affect McDermott. I don't think that it will that much, but there's no way to tell until the rubber hits the road in the season. And if he is pulled in one too many directions and it lessens his effectiveness either as that CEO role of head coach or just keeping everybody together and on the same page um, or if he's just not able to focus on the defense as much as Leslie Frazier was and look they were a very good defense by the numbers by the results by scoring doesn't matter how you look at it so is he going to be able to sort of match that standard it feels like it if we were giving a grade it might be a, a tiny arrow down but I'm just a lot happier with incomplete because it's more like we just don't know. It seems like the more fair grade, given the circumstances.
1: Uh, offensive talent, we're going to go up. Um, slightly up, I would say. Not like massively up. They were already a really talented offense. But um, you know, with adding in Harris, uh, with adding Dalton Kincaid, adding uh, Torrance as at minimum really good depth, but potentially a starter sooner rather than later. Uh, if he plays like we think he can play. Um, I would go slightly up there for overall offensive talent. Uh, defensive talent will go neutral. they were really good last year and as long as they're healthy, they're gonna be really good this year. you know, adding in Puna is nice, but overall the the core is roughly the same of what it was last year minus Tremaine. Um, I, I would say that's it's fair to put it at neutral.
0: It feels that way to me. I don't again, They were very good in every category we measured again, single digit grades in terms of their league rank for all the categories we talked about. It's very difficult to say, Oh yeah, they're way better than that. (laughs) Only three more spots on the chart, you know? (laughs) So I think they've done a nice job of shuffling pieces. Obviously there are big time pieces like Tremaine that moved on. um, But they've found ways they think to replace them either from folks they got in last year's draft class or, folks that they got in this year's draft class. The cupboard doesn't feel empty. It doesn't feel, like I said at the top of the show, that the window is closed. Their window is still open and hopefully will be for at least several more years, but it definitely is for this year. That brings us to ceiling and floor in wins. I did have a hard time with
1: this because on one hand, I think Miami's roster, and we went over the Dolphins uh, yesterday, I think Miami's roster is stronger. And so I put their, their ceiling at 13 yesterday, again, assuming health. Miami also dealt with a lot of injuries. If they're fully armed and operational, I thought Miami had a legitimate chance at 13 wins. Buffalo's roster is a tick below Miami, but their quarterback is better. Right. And we have uh, more evidence or rather a longer stretch of evidence that McDermott is that guy at coach. Right. So if you have an elite coach and an elite quarterback can you put them under Miami? Like, that's that's what I'm really having a hard time with. So I'll go with 13 again, which they did last year, even through impossible circumstances at times. I will still go with 13 while acknowledging that things could go sideways pretty quickly if they get uh, inundated with injuries again, which is why my floor is all the way down at 9 just like Miami. It just feels like both these teams are like I said on a knife's edge and it could kind of go either way. We hope it goes the good way for Bills fan's sake, we really do because good lord they deserve a Super Bowl. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge the reality that uh Miami's pretty good too and the Jets are pretty good too and New England is kind of sneaky. And they're going to rip off some wins from this team as it is, and they're still, in my opinion, only a couple key injuries away from uh, from having a lot of trouble again. So uh, we're hoping for it, we're praying for it. We think Bills fans uh,
0: have waited long enough for a Super Bowl, but it's going to be a tough road. Yeah, my ceiling's at thirteen as well because look, it's a seventeen game season. It's only four losses. <laughs> this is extremely difficult in the current iteration of the NFL to only lose four games, especially when you're in a division that's as tough as the AFC East. All the other teams around them either are as good as they were last year or got significantly better. In the case of the Jets and the Patriots, I think that both things are true. That means it's going to be tougher to get those wins within division, which are the road to the playoffs. So they could win 13 games this year, go to the playoffs, be fighting for the division lead if Miami's going to be as good as we think they are as well. But yeah, there's no way they can sustain injuries to, again, they lost, I'll say they lost a few full games from Josh. Like he still played, but he wasn't at his, the height of his powers. The defense got wrecked. No team in the NFL, in my estimation, can rip off like high double-digit wins when that much of your roster is lost to injury. On the bottom side, my floor is at 10 because they already saw it last year. They stared the ghost in the face and still came up with a lot of wins. And like we said, they've added talent in some key areas. Look, any team is going to drop off significantly if their star quarterback goes down with injury. We said the same thing about Miami, and it's no different in Buffalo. If Josh misses serious amounts of time, but I just don't feel like McDermott's going to let them fall flat on their face. They're still going to grind for wins. They're still a very talented roster and a very talented team. They play well together. I don't see them with less than double digit wins this year, barring pretty much nothing. It, it would take,
1: uh, it would take a lot. And I'm kind of building in, in my head, like I'm building in the possibility that, um, you know, the McDermott head coach plus DC thing doesn't, doesn't go as well as we think. And I'm building in the possibility of quarterback injury again, because they exposed Josh to so many hits like on purpose. And we always ask them, or we always rhetorically ask them, (laughs) why are you running your quarterback that much? Uh, And you know, we're, we're building in the possibility of, of an older defense now continuing to get banged up throughout the year. So I, I don't think they're ever going to be below 500. Like that's that's not possible, but they, they could slip to third in the division. If everything goes wrong again, because the jets are not a slouch and the Patriots are not a slouch. Like they kind of don't really have the margin for error, right? They're theoretically better than every team in the division. Theoretically, but it's not easy. It's really not easy. The AFC East is a beastly division. So they're going to have to be on top of it from week one, all the way to the end of the season. Um, Overall, though, I know that sounds negative, but we're just we're trying to to set real expectations here. Uh, It's a tremendous team. They have as good a chance as anybody as finally doing this thing, finally getting over the hump. And if Buffalo gets to throw that parade this year, EJ and I will be there with bells on because we love Buffalo. We love going to Buffalo. We love Bill's Mafia. EJ drank out of a fucking bowling ball last year at a and, tailgate
0: and is still here <laughs> and is
1: still alive somehow so uh we we have we have deep connections to this fan base and we hope the best for them um but it's going to be a tough year it's going to be a tough year that's it's a really really competitive division and competitive conference uh as you might have noticed by the way our camera is overheated so we're, we're back to doing the whole off-screen spooky voice graphic thing but if you enjoyed the show, if you stuck around during the entire series, make sure to come back one more episode tomorrow where we're picking a division winner. As we alluded, Miami's really good and the Jets are really good. It's not a, not a slam dunk that Buffalo's got this division wrapped up. So make sure to come back tomorrow because not only we're we picking division winner, we're also picking MVP of the division, offensive defense player of the, of the division, rookies of the Year, Coach of the Year. Etc., etc. So, uh, jam packed show tomorrow. EJ, I will see you there. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader.